You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 7th of December. And on the programme today, we discussed a new survey that shows that school children's skills have rapidly declined since COVID-19. In fact, one in four 15-year-olds is now considered a low performer in maths, science and reading. Now, what is causing it and can children make up for lost learning? We found out with two experts, Lisa Grace Wilson from Teach Middle East and tutor Heather Harris. Meanwhile, as the warm-up to the festive season coincides this year with COP28, we found out what is more environmentally friendly. Is it a fake Christmas tree or a real one? That was with climate campaigner Tatiana Antonelli. And although it was a rest day at COP28 on Thursday, that didn't mean that we took our eyes off the COP ball. Because while negotiators might be taking a break, it hasn't escaped attention that most of the people around the table are men. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is furious. We found out why it is so important to have female negotiators with gender campaigner and programme editor Eliza and Youngway from CNN. We also discussed why Expo City is getting on board to save the bees. That was with Marjan Faradouni, who's in charge of education there. And we also got into the subject of voice reproduction because Apple has introduced new software to allow users to reproduce their voice. It's originally designed to help those with disabilities, but we suspect it may be used for something else altogether. We got into the details of that with Professor Rob Sparrow. And Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sports headlines. Welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us this uh, Thursday morning. And we're taking a look at a survey that is really quite deeply worrying, particularly if you've got teenagers, because teachers around the world are seeing an unprecedented decline in the performance of their teenage pupils since COVID-19. Now, that's according to a new global survey that suggests students aged 15 are less likely to be proficient in maths, science and reading than those that were tested a decade ago. Basically, one in four 15-year-olds is now considered a low performer in those core subjects. Now, the study was carried out in 13 OECD countries, which are basically developed countries. And it's organised by the Programme for International Student Assessment, also known as PISA. The surveys take place every three years. This latest one was actually delayed because of COVID. Um, If you look at the UAE's stats, uh, the country has maintained its position in the global education rankings. So it actually doesn't look like it was necessarily impacted over the last three years. But pupils in the Emirates and those in Saudi Arabia as well actually scored less than the OECD average. Let's get reaction on this report from our local education experts. We're going to look into it over the next half hour. Uh, First up, I'm joined now by Lisa Grace Wilson, who's an editor at Teach Middle East. Lisa, lovely to have you join us on the line. Thank you uh, for talking to us on the agenda this morning. Tell me, are you surprised by the results of this study? I think I am not that surprised. Um, If we're following what's been happening in education globally, we know that the pandemic has exacerbated some of the issues that we were already seeing coming to light. Um, 
people are making it seem, in my estimation, that it was all because of COVID-19. But the truth is, from a lot of the research that we've been doing and looking at, it's it's something that's been long coming. Um, and so we can't all be surprised. But I have to say, though, us maintaining rather than declining significantly is quite it's quite a good. It's quite a good look for um, the UAE. Obviously, the immediate response in the situation is to go. Well, it must be because the schools closed during COVID nineteen, and therefore all the children were doing in inverted commas distance learning, and that is why we've seen this sudden precipitous decline. But but do you think that it's not just that that the, the picture is more complex? I think the picture is far more complex than that. COVID-19, it's it's as if it's just lifted the lid of something that's been simmering. Um, There's a lot happening, especially with the teaching and learning of mathematics, because that's where the the sharpest decline is when it comes on to students' um, algorithmic skills, etc. And that's because there is one a, a, a difficulty in recruiting quality teachers of mathematics. There's not enough of them to go around. Um, there is also that whole piece when it comes on to teaching to the test rather than honing in on the skills. Because remember, students can't really prepare for PISA by cramming the content. They have to have the skills because they don't know what will come on the exam. So they have to have had skills-based learning in order to tackle whatever is shown. And so over time, having students prepare directly for exams will impact their ability to carry out those transferable skills required for things like PISA. So this is not a COVID problem. This is a problem that's been there and now it's coming to the fore, I think. So you mentioned there a shortage of teachers. I know that there's this big rewired summit that's been going on here in the UAE. They've actually hosted it a couple of times. They're going to do it again next week at COP28, where it's called rewired. And and the reason why they, they call it that is because they're looking to completely rebuild the education system from the ground up and to sort of reinvent it for the new industrial revolution, ultimately, the new, you know, industry 4.0, as they're calling it, so that our children are actually educated for the for the jobs of the future. I have to admit that I'm not really clear as to what that new education system would look like. Um, perhaps you have a, a better idea of how things need to change in order for children to be doing better. Um, Let's look at, I mean, I'm not going to say I know exactly how it needs to be done, but if we look at Singapore, which is now sitting at the top of the PISA list, they did several things leading up over the last decade. Some of the things that they did, they reduced school-based assessments. So they have no mid-year assessments at all in Singapore. They removed those mid-year examinations. They created more of a problem-solving depth of knowledge type curriculum, which made less content, but deeper dive into the content. They taught, um, sorry, I'm looking down at my note, they taught less and their strategy was teach less, learn more. And I think going forward, all countries will have to get into this more seriously removing some of the necessity for exams and thinking more about what skills 
can we develop in our students to make them resilient and ready for whatever is coming? Because we're, we're going to kid ourselves if we think we know what's coming. We don't. I was at the Dubai Futures Foundation this week um, doing a talk with um, fellow panelists on what will schooling look like in 30 years. And the truth is, when we really look at the trends, it is more towards skills development and developing our students to be ready for whatever, because we don't know what is the future. We, we can't predict it. We'll be kidding ourselves. So in order to be ready for it, we have to sort of just be ready for anything, really. It's quite interesting that the UAE's uh, isn't faring as well as potentially other OECD countries. I mean, Saudi Arabia isn't either, obviously a, a very rich country there as well. I know that at the moment, the UAE is changing its education system. It, you know, it's moved departments that they've brought in new ministers at the top of the tree. They're changing the education system so that certain subjects are going to be taught in English rather than in Arabic. Do you think that things do need to change here more than perhaps in other developed countries with the education system? Um, so if you look at the top 10 of PISA, it is, it's not all the developed countries that are there. A lot of it is concentrated in Asia. Um, so we have to think about that as well. So it's not just the UAE that needs to make radical changes to the way education is done. And I'm not saying that they need to change in order to be better at PISA. To be very honest, PISA is just one, one of those benchmarks that we can use to talk about what's happening globally. I think we need to change so that we can better serve the young people and make them more future ready. Um, the UAE is changing. It is doing a lot. But one thing we need to remember is that these changes are not overnight. They're going to take decades, probably a whole generation. And so sometimes what we do is we think that we can make changes and the results are evident immediately. Education is a humongous tanker. And if you, if you liken it to that, to turn the rudder, to change it, to steer it in a new direction is going to take more than just one or two little tweaks or strategies here. It is going to take lots of trial and error. It's going to take a lot of research. It's going to take a lot of people on board, everyone on board, all of society, whether it's employers, government, schools, educators. It's a whole societal shift because education drives society. And so you have to shift all mindsets in order to make that change. And it's not going to be this quick. So yes, we know PISA comes every few years and it's a nice little benchmark, but our thinking has to be a bit bigger than that. It now has to be, where are we going? What are we doing for students? How are we preparing them for the future? Lisa, Grace Wilson, always a pleasure to have you on the agenda. Thank you very much for your analysis uh, there of that uh, programme for International Student Assessment or PISA, as we've just heard. Uh, really lovely to have you on the radio today. Uh, Lisa Grace Wilson there is editor at Teach Middle East. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. 
Welcome back to the agenda. Right, we're looking at a very worrying global education study on the programme today that basically suggests that school children's skills have rapidly declined since COVID. Now, the jury's sort of out whether COVID is to blame, but according to the Programme for International Student Assessment, one in four 15-year-olds is now considered a low performer in those key subjects of maths, science and reading. Now, compared to 2018, their average performance fell by 10 score points in reading, almost 15 in maths, and that is considered the equivalent of three quarter, three quarters of a year's worth of learning. There is some good news, not much, but there is some. I mean, overall, the UAE has maintained its position in those rankings, but pupils in the Emirates did score less than the average. So, you know, we, you know, we give with one hand and then we take away with the other, basically. So the big question is, you know, if children have fallen behind, will they be able to make up for those lost years of education? Let's find out. I'm joined now by tutor and education expert Heather Harris. She runs the Heather Harris Education Hub, which is a sort of tutoring uh, body. Heather, thanks so much for joining me in the studio. So lovely to have you with us. A pleasure. Thank you. How big a deal is this survey? You know, if you've got a teenager, should you be looking at them and going, hang on a minute, have you fallen behind? What can we do about it? Okay, so I think um, generally education has slipped and I think COVID has been a catalyst. The way we learn has changed as well. So I think we've got to be very careful and accept that, you know, children learn a different way, but the education system still based around the old system of learning. So it's always more difficult to keep ahead. Now, in terms of catching up, which is what all parents are really scared about, it's really, it's not impossible, but it does take a bit of digging in. And we've got to keep remembering that children are learning differently to the way they're being assessed. So children are learning through online, short bite-sized bits of information. Their life's driven by social media and small chunks of information. And then we're saying, actually, you need to go to school. You need to sit an exam. That's really quite long. And, and that's a challenge. When they get to university, you'll see universities have changed faster than the GCSE and A-levels. So when they get to university, very few university courses are now making them sit exams for what they're learning. Um, it's all on, it's on, end, it's on open exam papers, end-of-term um, end assessments. But that doesn't help your child because they've still got to get there. They've still got to pass these old-fashioned GCSE, A-levels, IB, whichever route they, they take. And somehow we've got to make that possible. Now, nothing's impossible. About three quarters of a year's worth of learning. It feels a bit like, it must feel a bit like when you work in news, okay? Because if I go, stop the clocks, I need to read everything there is to know about COP, so I'm ready for the show tomorrow morning. You can't because the news cycle just keeps on going. And it's the same with education, right? They just, their peers keep on learning. And if you've got to revise stuff, but there's still more stuff to learn, you know, where do you find the time? It's, yeah, it's always a very difficult balance because we have to, quite often we take children right back to the beginning. But as you say, the learning's still ongoing. So you're trying to backfill. It's a bit like, I always say it's a bit like building a house. So if you haven't got the strong foundations there, all you're doing is building wobbly walls. But once you put those foundations in place, generally those blocks start to connect with cement because that learning is there. It's finding the holes that's really the challenging bit. And and a really good team of tutors are able to do that fairly quickly. Quite often, it's the same holes. So for instance, um, a child maybe in year four, they're doing maths, but they never really learnt what a number meant. 
um, so they can count to ten, they can do their tables, but the significance of the exact value of, no, of a number falls apart when they have to put it in place. So, for instance, when they suddenly get to exchanging across tens, they're taking this ten, this ten, and they've no idea where they're putting it or what they're doing with it because place value never meant anything to them. So those missing holes, those foundations just aren't there. Now, take that forward to GCSE and A-level, and that's a massive problem because, obviously, those layers keep being added, but the foundation's still wobbly. But you can go back and mend the wobble, mend that, that foundation block. Is it expensive? Because lots of people here are thinking, oh, well, if I get a tutor, I mean, that's cost a fortune. And when I fit it in with all the extras, is there a way of doing it that isn't Okay, so really expensive, basically. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, tutoring is expensive. But the bottom line is, you know, it's not an investment for now. It's an investment for the rest of your life. So if you actually even it out, it's not that much. Um, And, you know, a child that fails now, you've got massive question marks over where they're going to go, what schools won't take them back. You know, the cost of failing is worse than the cost of tutoring, if you like. So you just have to think ahead. Um, But there are other ways of of, of filling those gaps much, much more economically. But it takes an awful lot of self-discipline. Mm. and parent discipline and we've all got busy lives consistency is key you can't just dip in and go right okay this Saturday I've got three hours let's get on with it let's you know let's let's learn type tables or whatever it is we're missing and then not do anything for another three weeks because that learning is lost and that was really what happened during COVID is we we learned something but there was no consistency no filling in no checking no consolidation going on so if you decide that you're going to do it yourself you literally have to set an hour or half an hour aside a day and you can go through programs like like BBC, Bite Size, Twinkle, you can download. If you go online, there are masses of resources on YouTube, but you just need to know what to learn. So Mm. where do you find out what to learn? You basically need to go to exam specifications, you need to go to UK curriculum, and you need to look at what you need to learn and does your child know it? And if they don't know it, you fill those holes. So I have to say that I've been using this system called Atom recently. Mm. And I have to say, I'm the with my nine and ten year old, I'm the least sort of educational person known to man. I'm a terrible mother. I don't get them doing their homework. I'm useless. They can't spell. It's my fault. Um, and and yet this thing, Atom, it, it, it really does make it easier. So I've enjoyed that. But we are coming towards a rather nice three-week holiday, rather nice for the children. Um and that might be an opportunity for them to to catch up. Do you, you know, is this, can you, can you send them on a course to make them catch up over a three week period for Christmas? Yes. So we run, we actually run what we call boot camps and boot camps are about drilling children in like almost army style um, practice to enable them to pass exams. So they, the boot camps are run by UK examiners, um, top examiners from the UK. They go online, force students to a class, and they are drilled that if you've learned this, you now need to apply it like that. Now, the problem is children learn information and it's really easy to learn, but the application is what gets is where they get their marks and that's where they pass and fail. And we get so many parents come through and go, yeah, they know it, but they're not passing. Mm. Well, either they're not knowing it, really, or they're not applying it. And, you know, and as I say to all parents, there's two things to pass exams. One is knowing what you've got to learn and two is knowing how to write the exam paper. And if you've got those, you can't fail. Can I send my nine-year-old and ten-year-old on a boot camp or is that just for the teenagers? <laughs> it's for teenagers, oh, unfortunately. Very disappointing. Looking for a course, looking for something to keep them occupied. Uh, literally, my husband and I said this morning, tomorrow's the last day of term. How can it be the last day of term tomorrow? What are we going to do with them for three weeks? Two parents, full-time jobs. I mean, honestly, they're going to roam wild. Don't go in to Sakim over the next three weeks because my children will be running wild. Uh, Heather Harris, thank you very much for coming in. An absolute pleasure to get your advice. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you. Heather Harris runs uh, the Heather Harris Education Hub. Well worth checking it out.
This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Right, we are talking Christmas trees on The Agenda today. That song just always reminds me of Home Alone, doesn't it? Well, we are asking a very important question today. And I know that a lot of people in this country don't celebrate Christmas at all. But I want to know whether you've got your tree up yet, if you are a festive uh, celebrator. What type do you get? Is it plastic or is it real? And then we got thinking, because obviously I've got sort of personal everyone's got a sort of personal grudge to bear against one type of tree. Personally, I don't like the plastic ones. I think it has to be real. I like to be able to stick my head inside it and and smell it. Otherwise, it's not Christmas for me. But I understand that the plastic ones are a lot cheaper and I suppose more environmentally friendly because you use the same one every year. Or is it better to have a real tree because, of course, it's grown and therefore sucked up lots of carbon as it grew? Uh, Jen and I had a serious, hard-fought debate over this and we decided that we had to call in a referee. And I'm delighted to say we're now joined on the line by our referee, Tatiana Antonelli, who is a climate campaigner and founder of the social action group Goombook. She could not be busier with COP28 going on, but she has agreed to come on the radio to talk about which is better Plastic or real? For the environment, that is. Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us. We need a definitive answer. My gosh, I feel I need the whistle right now you as do. a referee. You do. <laughs> you do. It, it was a pitched battle. Uh, and, and there were many, many sort of very well-made arguments were made on either side of the conversation. And in fact, we've got people getting in touch, talking here, saying, um, Arvin says, I got my real tree yesterday and it's a seven-foot beast. I think I have single-handedly wiped out CO2 in JBR until at least Boxing Day. So there you go. There's Arvin's contribution. Well, actually, it's, it's a very good question. And, and I have to, to be honest, uh, um, it's uh, it's something that it's not so easy. It's not a question easy to answer. First of all, if we were in Europe or or in a, in a country where you have uh, real pine trees growing next to you, then definitely it would make more sense. Here we are actually importing those trees, so the carbon footprint of importing those real natural trees is is quite big. Uh, at the same time, when we chop a tree we release basically the CO2. So whatever CO2 that tree was able to absorb the moment the tree is cut down, unfortunately, um, the the, the carbon is going to be released uh, specifically in the way we get rid of the tree after we're done. But if we have to make, you know, um, a conscious decision, a plastic tree, in order to uh, be sustainable you would need to use it for at least 10 years in order to kind of offset the carbon emissions that have been produced to to make this tree let's remember that uh, plastic comes from petrol from oil Um, there's another issue with that is that uh, these trees release some uh, chemicals in the air especially uh, when we put all those cute lights on on them the, the, the warmth, the heat uh, helps release even more chemicals out of, of the plastic. So in terms of indoor air quality, it's not the, the best thing. 
My goodness me. There's so much to think (laughs) about. There's so many things that hadn't even occurred to me that you need to think about. True. And uh, I can go on. No, no, do. Do go on. Um, another thing is that um, the, the, the real trees, yes, of course, they are imported. Um, most of them are not in a pot, so roots are not there anymore. Those trees have been chopped, so they, they are destined to be thrown away. So what I would suggest is to not burn. I know here we love to to barbecue, but don't use your Christmas tree because you're going to release definitely all the CO2 emissions by burning it. What you should do is either compost it. uh, If you are someone who is into composting, there is also a local company called the Waste Lab. And every Christmas they offer the service to pick up your Christmas tree to compost it. So it will go uh, to a, a good use. Uh, if you can and if you want, in some countries what they do, they chip the tree and they actually use it to, to cover the roots of other trees and that, uh, that has a very good impact on the soil as well. But uh, as uh, my colleague Samantha told me, what she does at home is that she takes all, out all the branches of, of the trees and uh, they put the branches with all the pines into white vinegar for a couple of weeks and after that you can do a mix of half of this liquid and half water and use it for cleaning for spraying and it will actually give to your home and to even your office a beautiful fresh pine smell around totally chemical free so again your tree can go to to good use so I love nature I love natural things I would definitely go for for a natural tree a real tree but understanding that these trees also don't contribute to deforestation. So let's not think that if you buy a, a real tree, Christmas tree, you're deforesting. No, all these trees come from certified plantations. Um, uh, even better if we're able to have a little label of FSC on our tree to, to be even more sure about this. But Christmas trees are cultured. They are made specifically for this uh, uh, season. So we're not going out in, in natural forests, removing trees to have them then sent all over to, to the rest of the world. So be reassured, we're not contributing to, to deforestation. There is a carbon footprint, so this is the thing, but at the end of the day, the carbon footprint of a plastic tree is even worse. My goodness me, Tatiana, you've given us so much more to think about. But thank you very much indeed. I think we did come down on the side of the real tree, ultimately. But if you can find one with roots and keep it alive for longer, then then even better. But now we are going to have to do another interview with the team from the Waste Lab and, and also other people who recycle trees and compost them. Uh, so you've set us up for another fantastic slot right here on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us and the extensive research you did in order to tell us all about it. So Tatiana Antonelli there, climate campaigner and founder of the social action group Goombook, right here on the agenda. So we are going to turn our attention to a a different topic now, but it's fair to say that the Christmas tree messages keep on coming thick and fast. Uh, The debate continues as to whether or not a real tree or a fake tree is better or 
to rephrase that, more environmentally friendly. Um, Tatiana Antonelli from Goombook there giving us a very good sustainable answer. Uh, if you missed it, you can always listen back to our podcast. Sheena's got in touch saying, good morning. I always had a real tree back home and I felt it was more sustainable because trees need to be thinned out so newer ones can grow. Plastic is what I have now, though, as um, it's reusable. But in time, of course, that will go into landfill. So that is not so great. Sheena there uh, trying to balance environmentalism with reuse. It is a really difficult discussion. What is better, real or fake? Is your tree up? And do you worry about the environmental impact of your Christmas tree? Um, Really hot topics on the agenda today. And um, yeah, although it is a rest day at, at COP28, um, as you can tell, we can't tear our way, tear ourselves away from the topic. Um, negotiations are on pause. Um, but, you know, the spotlight is now falling on something sort of slightly tangential. Um, it's actually falling on who is taking part in the discussions, who actually has a seat at that table. And speaking this week at COP28, former US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton highlighted the lack of women leading the talks. And she said that lack of representation is particularly concerning when we recognise that climate change is indeed a gendered issue. Have a listen. Women and girls disproportionately bear the burden of climactic events. They are more likely to be affected by natural disasters and particularly by extreme heat. Extreme heat is becoming one of the biggest challenges to everyone, but particularly to women and particularly to women in the global south who work in either positions outside in the informal economy. They're in fields, they're in factories, they're in markets, they're doing all kinds of work that becomes absolutely impossible if temperatures get to 40, 50 degrees centigrade. Now, what is interesting is that in recognition of that issue, this week, COP28, the climate change talks, dedicated an entire day to discussions about gender equality and a just transition. But while it's one thing to put those matters on the agenda, it is completely different to find an actual equality based, equality-focused solution to the climate crisis that we're facing at the moment. So we wanted to find out whether any progress is actually being made. And to analyse that question, earlier I sat down with Eliza Anyangwe, who is Managing Editor of CNN's award-winning Global Gender Inequality Series, which is called As Equals. She explained why environmental issues present in such an unequal way. So climate change is what the experts, uh, the wonks, will call a vulnerability multiplier. So our societies are already unequal, right? And climate change is one of these things that basically just outlines all the different inequalities and makes them worse. So, for example, and depending on where you are in the world, so if you're a young woman whose job it is already to fetch water, if the water is drying up, you have to go further to get that water. It is not just the sort of distance and time that you spend walking to get the water, it's the risks that you encounter along the way. But if you're also living in a city where the temperature is rising and your fertility rates are affected as the climate science is showing that pollution affects women's fertility, there are just many, many, many ways, whether you are in the rich world or in poorer countries, where climate change is exacerbating the gender inequalities that we have, unfortunately, everywhere around the world. 
Now, this is the first time that gender equality has been added to the COP agenda in such a sort of specific way. Do you think that's going to make any difference, though? You know, I think I think yes, because I think that where policymaker attention goes, it is an indication of what policymakers care about. If we compare it to something else, let us compare it to, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals, where they spent a lot of time and effort saying these are the things we should be working to eradicate. It doesn't necessarily mean that money, attention and effort followed, but it did set a direction of travel. And I think that if you're living in a world as we are, where in March on International Women's Day, new polling came up from a around the world that showed that people thought generally that we have gone too far on gender equality issues, that um, no more work needs to be done there. We are moving backwards. You see it in places like in the US, for example, on um, reproductive rights. We see it in other parts of the world as well. So there is very much a concern. You see it in the rise of the manosphere and the idea that women's roles should be more conservative or traditional homekeepers. And this is getting traction with younger generations too. So the idea that from the really intimate spaces to our really big public spaces like COP, we need to be thinking about gender equality, not just because women are victims, but also because they need a a seat at the table to be making decisions. It's long overdue. What's so interesting is that you mentioned women at the tables there. Hillary Clinton, in fact, yesterday drew attention to the fact that there aren't really very many women at the tables at the moment. That must be very disappointing for, for someone like you. Yes, also representation really matters. It is not the the full picture. In fact, one of the things we like to do on As Equals is to say that we're reporting on the winners and losers of patriarchal systems and not just on kind of like meet this great woman who is doing X thing because you can have that kind of journalism for 100 years and the systems that create inequality actually don't shift. But actually, given that we are very visual creatures, we can see in the pictures when the delegates stand together, when the ministers stand together, who is supposed to be representing us. And the idea that gender equality or that women's presence is some kind of marginal issue when they make up half the world's population, but that more than that, actually gender issues affect us all because the kinds of expectations that our gender norms place on all genders really needs to count. And so Hillary Clinton is absolutely right when she says, actually, well, how serious are we about this when you're only talking to half the room? An agreement was made by more than 60 countries. They came together to say that they were going to act. But I have to admit, I read what they said they were going to do about six times, and I'm not sure I understood it. There was a lot of words, a lot of mumbo-jumbo. What does it actually boil down to? Has any progress been made here in the last 24 hours? I'll be honest, having just arrived at COP and trying to get my head around where the policy decisions are and where the attention is, I'm not yet sure I've seen anything that feels newsworthy. In the conversations that I've had with actually a range of people, so As Equals had an event yesterday to showcase an exhibition that we have here at COP, and what I heard there from people who attended that event and were speaking on it were on issues like loss and damage, on issues like adaptation, on issues like climate finance, but actually Actually, most trickily, the question of what does a just transition look like? So if you are in the perspective of someone in the global north and you're saying, oh, my God, we really need to deal with this by going green as quickly as possible. We're reporting stories for as equals where we are seeing that in places like Indonesia, what that green transition means is more exploitation of nickel mining and what that does to women in those communities. And so the idea that suddenly all of us driving you know, electric vehicles is going to deal with the problem is entirely 
entirely obscuring the cost of it elsewhere. And that's what got us into this mess in the first place, right? When we were looking at other types of energy extraction, we didn't count, you know, the negative externalities. But people in those communities, particularly indigenous women, for whom it is a huge risk, right? We have seen in places like the Amazon that or Colombia, women are the ones on the forefront and they are risking their lives, right? And so the people who have been taking the risk are basically saying to the leaders now, meet us halfway. You need to do better because we are already doing everything we can. What would a just transition look like to you? I think Mary Robinson a few years ago had the statement where she said climate change is a man-made problem that requires a feminist solution. And I think what is really interesting about the choice of the word feminist is that it's a philosophy, right, as opposed to a question about your gender. It's about saying that actually that there were ways in which our societies were organized where it was prioritizing competition, a macho approach to diplomacy and politics and business and all of those things. And that if we are going to address this giant mess that we have created, then we are going to need a different approach. And that feminism suggests that we can get there by being collaborative, by thinking about the least, by making a space at the table. All these words that were thrown away until the pandemic, and then you suddenly started seeing the world's largest economies talking about we need a gender equal build back better. Now, unfortunately, with all the other emergency situations that have distracted us from that agenda, we still need to bring back people's attention to what does a gender equal world look like? Um, so a just transition in sort of a, an answer to your question is one that doesn't just think about the energy needs and the security needs and the safety needs and the work needs of the richest, but also the poorest. And that actually, if again, we're learning from indigenous women, it recognizes the planet also as as an entity that we must protect. And so really we cannot afford to continue to ignore the voices of the people who are thinking not just about themselves, but about all of us. Really fascinating stuff there from Eliza Anyangwe. She is managing editor of CNN's award-winning Global Gender Inequality series, which is called As Equals. They've actually got an exhibition ongoing at the moment in the Green Zone. So if you're planning to head down there, uh, make sure you take a look. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Always good to have you listening. I'm Georgia Tolley and I will be here all the way through until 1pm. We're going to take a look now at the growing field of artificial intelligence voice reproduction on the show today because Apple has launched a new software that allows users to reproduce their voice. Why, oh why, creature, are you so quiet? You've lost your voice. I'll help you find it. Now, that is actually the advert that they released on International Day of Persons with Disabilities this week because the aim of this software is to serve people who have limited or no speech. For example, if you're at risk of losing your voice uh, or have a condition that can progressively impact your voice, uh, this new software, which is called Personal Voice, enables you to create the sound of your voice that sounds exactly like you. Now, of course, that is a really wonderful measure to help people who are at risk, but it is also 
does have wider implications for voice reproduction. Joining me now to talk through those implications is Robert Sparrow, who is a professor of philosophy and applied ethics at Monash University, specifically at the Monash Data Futures Institute. Rob, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Teams. Lovely to have you with us. Can you give me a little bit I mean, I suppose, first of all, can you give me rea- your reaction to this new software? Because I suppose it, it's existed already, but the fact that Apple are introducing it to a wider market is interesting in itself. Yes, I did think it's a little bit of a stunt in some ways. That's not to say that this technology isn't useful, but as you say, it has existed for some time. Uh, there's actually lots of... Uh, free applications online that will do the same thing. So you can uh, record a sample of your voice and then an AI system will uh, essentially allow you to turn anything that you type uh, into speech. Uh, What's new in this case is um, making it part of a sort of suite of features on the iPhone, Uh, but it has to be said that there's a fairly small user base uh, for this technology uh, because you have to record your voice before you lose it. Um, for people who are already unable to speak, uh, there are other tools that they can use now, but it won't sound the way they used to sound. So what's new here is the idea that you might do this before you lose your voice. Uh, but one has to, it's a fairly rare set of circumstances where one knows that that is happening uh, and um, really cares about sounding like uh, oneself. I have to say that I think it's much more likely to be used to recreate people's voices and do them out of a job, frankly, like me, (laughs) or a voiceover artist. Um, Or your voice might be then used to be the voice of a robot, for example. I mean, for me, it it sort of had slight sort of uh, slightly suspicious sort of connotations, I suppose. But maybe maybe I'm a journalist and I'm naturally predisposed to be suspicious. Look, I I did consider doing this interview using a pre-recorded AI-generated uh, voice. Uh, that's the kind of stunt that people do in these um, in these circumstances. Uh, yeah, I mean, we are on the verge of being able to generate natural sounding human voices that um, are kind of also completely synthetic. Um, pretty soon, um, someone will be able to sound like you on air uh, just by um, having recorded the audio of one of your programs and then typing into a text box. Indeed, I suspect someone could do that now and uh, could ring up one of your friends in your voice uh, just by recording audio from uh, your on-air presence and um, plugging it into one of the existing free tools. I'm trying to find a reason why this is a good step forward. And and I think I'm blinded by the fact that I'm just scared of my own job going out the window. Are there ways in which maybe it could be productive, I suppose, maybe for people who are nervous of public speaking, potentially? Look, speech synthesis is very important for people who can't uh, speak. But again, that technology has been around since the early to mid-1980s. The original Um, Synthetic voices did sound very synthetic. If you've ever 
Oh, well, Stephen uh, Hawking's, who, of course. Yes, yeah. yes. So who that's, actually that's chose. Another... They could have recreated his, his voice. They could have made him sound more natural. But he decided to stick with the synthetic, robot sounding voice because everyone identified it with him, which, which was lovely in some ways. Yes, yeah, so clearly that's a great technology um, you know, for a, a class of users. Um, I mean, this is a very powerful technology for um, chatbots, uh, for instance, instead of, you know, having that little window pop up uh, on your uh, desktop and you typing away to the bank asking for information on what's happened to your accounts, uh, you'll be able to talk that through uh, pretty uh, shortly. Um, takes a lot of the stress out of reading. You can already, um, there are commercial products now where if you don't feel like reading a document, you can just... Um, send it into a, uh, an application and it will be read to you and it will be read to you in a natural sounding voice, which is much easier uh, and less tiring to listen to than the heavily synthesized voices. So, that, you know, those are good applications. I, I, you know, lots of people prefer audiobooks nowadays. Yeah. Uh, the people who read audiobooks uh, that work is probably uh, going to disappear. Oh, no. This is, well, I also, I suppose if you are just fed up with reading your child a bedtime story, um, you could just synthesize it and, and, and take, take the stress out of life. Um, always wonderful to have you on. Thank you very much indeed for your time. That is Professor Robert Sparrow. Uh, he's a professor of philosophy and pl- applied ethics at the Monash Data Futures Institute. Thank you very much indeed. My goodness me, food for thought. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Always lovely to have you listening to The Agenda. In particular, this Thursday morning, we are going to turn our attention now to sport, as we always do at this time of the day. And a fantastic editor, Chris McCarty, is joining us now uh, to tell us all the latest headlines. Good morning, Georgia. Mr. McCarty, happy Thursday. And I feel like we've spoken an awful lot this week about football. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately for football fans out there, we're going to continue that trend. It was another busy, busy night of English Premier League action last night. And what an enthralling night it proved to be. A couple of big stories. Let's start at Villa Park, where Unai Emery and his Aston Villa team Well, they secured the biggest win of this midweek round of fixtures. A 1-0 win over Manchester City. The champions, of course, City bidding to become the first team in Premier League history to win four successive Premier League titles. Man United, on a couple of occasions, won it three times. No team has done four. And if City are to do it, they might have to do it the hard uh, hard way because that's now four games without victory. Three draws and defeat. So un-City-like, and for the first time, certainly that I can recall in the Pep Guardiola era, City looking fallible. Leon Bailey it was with the only goal of the game last night. You've got to say Aston Villa, great value for the three points. The remarkable recent home run and record continues. Uh, It really is becoming a fortress in the English Premier League. They're up to third. They're just four points behind Arsenal at the top of the table. And mark my words, they're emerging not just serious top four contenders that are actually emerging, say it quietly, as title challengers as well. I'd still expect them to tail off, but with Unai Emery at the helm, if they can keep their key players fit 
they may just go on to have a wonderful season indeed. The other big result last night, I guess, uh, the pressure a little bit alleviated from Eric Ten Hag. Manchester United 2, Chelsea 1. Scott McTominay, the unlikely hero for United, the Scotsman, with a double to see off a struggling Mauricio Pochettino and Chelsea sides. Cole Palmer had briefly restored parity, but in that second half, a bullet header from Scott McTominay giving Manchester United a much needed three points. And given all the woes this season, it is remarkable to think Man United are now just three points behind Man City in the Premier League table. As for the other results, big win for Liverpool last night. They went to Sheffield United and won 2-0. That takes them to second in the table. They're just two points behind Arsenal. And, well, another result that may have seismic consequences. Fulham 5, Nottingham Forest 0. There had been some conjecture leading into this fixture that Steve Cooper, the Forest boss, was under a bit of pressure. I think that pressure has just been ramped up ever so much uh, more after that uh, deplorable feet from a forest perspective he apologized to the visiting fans he apologized to fans afterward he said blame me and the hierarchy may just do that watch that over the course of the next few days i think steve cooper may be in a little bit of bother indeed so i guess you bang up to date with a few of the big football stories uh, from the night of course from a local perspective we're building up to sail gp this coming weekend the best sailors on the planet those f50 catamarans those foils They'll be up out of the water. They'll be racing at speeds of 100 kilometres an hour. It is some spectacle down there at Rashid Port. I'm excited for it. I think an awful lot of people are. I spoke to the organisers yesterday. Ticket sales have been going great guns. So I'm looking forward to that this weekend, Georgia. For now, though, I'm looking forward to a hot drink and let me rest these uh, these vocal cords. That's what happens when you stay up well past your bedtime to watch a bit of footy. Back to you. Chris McCarty there preparing himself for a three-hour show this afternoon from 5pm. It is your drive time show. It is off script. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am to 1pm.